Hey, it's Caroline Bunder, producer here of Ameritech Public Radio. Today's piece comes to us from Hannah Young, one of our reporters who did a show about the relationship that West Virginians have with the media based on our recent trip to West Virginia. The piece tackles the question of how to change one's representation. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. Enjoy! every media station there is. They're Jewish. It's just a lot of biased opinions, so I try to stay away from it. I think Fox News is biased. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because I know what the truth is, from not only from other media, but from, or, you know, other TV media, but from reading and things. Charleston, West Virginia does not look like a capital city. It looks weathered, forlorn, tired, like many inhabitants inside of the city itself. These voices, they are some of the locals from the area. As you can hear, they, like the region, appear stuck, conflicted, wrestling with something. The media has battered these people down, portraying who they are and what they do in a very specific lens. But their towns aren't just for stories, it's a town of real people, living real lives. And yet, they find their world is portrayed in a different way on the national stage, constantly. One thing I kept hearing about this region is how the media helicopters in to grab a story and then fly right out. Simple, effective, damning to a place that has been treated this way for so long. Maybe that is where a mistrust with the media comes from? Or is it that we live in an age where everyone has a channel made just for them, just for their tribe? And is this tribalism at the heart of this reckoning with the media? This reckoning is what I tried to dig into during my recent investigation into the state of West Virginia. It all started this summer when our journalism teacher assigned Hillbilly Elegy, written by J.D. Vance, and Elizabeth Katz, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia, as our reading assignment. We started out the year reflecting on our reading, discussing the discrepancies between the two books and the unfortunate ways that groups of people tend to get generalized, especially from that area of our country. Next, our big announcement came. We were going to West Virginia, legitimately traveling to this region and meeting these people that we had researched and read about for real, but this time face-to-face. You may be thinking, West Virginia, why would a school from Westchester, New York, actually be going there? Those were my initial thoughts. My teacher announced the trip, and using the word panic to describe my reaction is an understatement. I really struggled with how I would appear to these people, a suburban New Yorker invading their space. But I quickly realized this wasn't about me. My fears and opinions were my problems, not theirs. The majority of these citizens were struggling with bigger issues, and I was just there to give them a platform to speak, a platform where they got to decide how they were represented. We talked for a while with the first man you heard. A group of us were walking along the long downtown road when he abruptly called us over. He was sitting on his front stoop with clutter completely covering his yard and porch. It was 11 a.m., and the empty beer cans lying beside him were crystal clear. He immediately asked if we were from New York. As soon as we said yes, I barely had time to hit record before he began talking a mile a minute about his views. So you got a black kid that gets killed. And then you got a white kid that gets killed. You don't hear shit about the white kid. Nothing. Because you got ACLU in there, the NAACP, Ron Sharpton, all the big mouths that are crying for attention. Those are the ones that get hurt. Those are the ones they cater to. Interviews like this left my jaw in my hands. It was hard to keep interviewing when I couldn't even process the things people were saying to me in real time. 
But as a reporter and as an investigator, I knew I had to keep doing my job. This man wasn't crazy. He was struggling, fighting through his own pain. He was experiencing issues most people wouldn't understand, a clear lack of trust with the outside world. He just wanted to talk to us and explain himself. Though finding truth in what his specific interview said was hard, it made it apparent what the relationship between the people here and the media was. Bad. But why? Where did that trust go? That's what I worked to find out. We started out talking to a local journalist in Morganstown. I reached out to David Beard a couple weeks prior to leaving, who was a writer on the Dominion Post, a paper that covers the Morganstown area news, West Virginia University news, and West Virginia University sports. And he was eager to talk to us about his job as a journalist and what it was like to report the news in West Virginia specifically. My producer and I caught a ride and made our way to the office. The car ride was long, about 15 minutes from the location we were set. After looping in circles, we found it. The 10 minutes before the interview were interesting. We couldn't find the right door. Hannah actually had to call him to meet us, and we ended up waiting in the cold for a few minutes. Then, from around the corner, this timid older man walked up and shook our hands. He led us up to the office, which was pretty empty. It seemed pretty apparent it was a slow news day. Eventually, we made our way to a private room for interviews and got right down to business. We began to talk about his role in the media, what his specific jobs are, his process of writing a story, the effects of the story, etc. I view myself as a public servant. I try to make people aware of what the government is doing or what local people of a prominence are doing so that they can make informed decisions about uh, how, where they want to see their community or their state to go. David Beard is different than the national media that West Virginians tend to hate around here. He's a local journalist working on a smaller scale paper. He makes a clear distinction between the national news and the type of news he covers. When I began to ask about the similarities between his paper and the larger national outlets, he made a point clear. They are not the same. With this, David gave me a quick spark, as if telling me something I somehow did not know, but he clearly thought was obvious. A lot of the national stuff, of course, we don't bother with. We either pick up a wire story or just ignore it. And uh, um, I think the simple answer would be we just emphasize local. We kind of serve a, maybe a three, five county area. So we just make sure we write about what's going on in, in our area. In a sense, we don't have real competition for what we do because we just focus on this area and, we, and, and do it the best we can because we're answerable to the people who are, we see at the grocery store, we make every effort, sometimes we make a mistake, but we make every effort to make sure that uh, our stories are really, are actually balanced. Part of David's job is representing and calling out people in the towns he covers. But his newspaper doesn't have the luxury of typing a story and never talking the subject again. He sees and has to interact with the people he interviews every day. He described to us an acronym his editor emphasizes to the staff when they are in the process of writing stories. Our, our previous editor had a, a thing she called BARF, Balanced, Accurate, Responsible, and Fair. And so you have to weigh every story to that standard. I don't see it. I see some of that in the national media, but not a lot. What I found when I talked to people on the street was that this acronym is what they felt some of the larger media outlets lacked. The people I got a chance to talk to around town and in the mall in Charleston tended to believe that the media chose to show a specific lens of their region. The big news broadcasters like CNN and Fox look at the region narrowly and report without grasping the heart and soul of West Virginia. Even David agreed. 
you can slant a story by choosing your sources. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have one, like say, you set up a straw man and have one idiot that you quote yeah. who's on the side that you're, you're against and then quote three or four or five people who are on the side you're on and make the story that way. And I, that goes on daily. I see it. This concept of the straw man made me think back to the interviews I previously had conducted. The majority of people I talked to felt most of the bigger national medias were slanted unfairly, and by doing so, were misrepresenting certain groups of people and political portions of their society. When I asked Mr. Beard about this, he gave us his opinion on the larger-scale media. Um, me personally? <laughs> uh, I've met national media people, and obviously some of them are highly qualified and far better journalists than I'll, I'll ever be. Uh, a lot of them are, are arrogant airheads. <laughs> um, it's you can probably argue that you know that the whole Trump fake news thing mm-hmm. kind of uh, sets up this issue of what is fake news, and I think what Trump does is blur the line between uh, news that's untrue, that somebody takes something doesn't verify it, runs something that's blatantly false, and news that's biased. As David said this to us, some questions immediately popped into my head. Maybe this whole fake news concept is actually centered around bias? Maybe so much of the blame is being put on subjects when really it should be shared with the publishers? And I think this is where I began to find the connection to the locals' frustration. To them, media is getting away with constantly portraying a one-sided view of news, and no one seems to be stopping them. This brought me back to a conversation I had with a 25-year-old named Sarah on our second day in the Charleston Mall. Similarly to David, she saw the bias in national media when it came to politics and sources. Uh, you know, I really believe that the media is probably pretty biased, especially politically driven and different things. Um, you're never going to get the whole story from one source. So, And to this, David agrees. I think that, yes, a lot of the national media is biased, either left or right. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you read it, it's so obvious uh, I, I know some of my colleagues here would deny that and say that they're all professionals and they're doing the best they can, they're journalists. But. but just because David, a local journalist, sees the same issues of bias with the national media as local Virginians do, does not mean he's not a part of the problem. He actually explained quite a few stories where he admits he messed up. I did an extensive story on this, this process that helped uh, people with certain types of disabilities communicate. And I question one boy who um, it was using this process and I asked him how he it was how he uh, was born with his, his birth defects I'm just gonna use that word because I don't remember what yeah correctly. and he said his mother was an alcoholic and so I was writing this story at two in the morning and I was half asleep and I went and included that mm-hmm. unnecessarily in my story um, and the people who read it overlooked it and didn't cut it out. So six months later, I got sued for libel. David was very kind to talk to us and gave us a valuable insight on the local journalism that was valuable. But I felt like I was still missing a portion of my story. Here we have a local journalist's perspective who agrees with the residents of his town and is not afraid to critique the process of bigger media outlets. But we also have a man who has admitted to committing the same crimes as these outlets. What did all of this mean? 
The stories go beyond the publication source. How do their biased tendencies play a role in the people represented? Getting the journalist side of the news was one crucial part of my investigation. But I didn't want to stop there. Knowing we were going to West Virginia, one very controversial issue that kept coming up in my research involved the coal mining industry. When I started looking at who to contact in regards to mining, I found a page of all the workers in the West Virginia Coal Association. On a whim, I sent out an email requesting an interview, not sure who would respond. Bill Rainey, the president of the association, emailed me back saying that he would be happy to talk to me. About 20 minutes before the interview, I was incredibly nervous. I was standing outside the Capitol building with my co-producer going over the questions I'd prepared. I wanted to do this interview right. This was a true opportunity to talk to someone in charge of such a controversial profession that is constantly getting mocked in the media. I wanted to truly get a grasp of how the media portrayal affects his industry. But I also didn't want to just be another media clown shoving a microphone in his face. I wanted to be different. As David emphasized, and the people I polled made clear, West Virginians don't trust a national media source that knows the story before they even investigate. I wanted to keep the preconceived notions out of this interview and just talk to Mr. Rainey. Though I wouldn't be running into any of the people I talked about in the grocery store, I still wanted to be a person they could trust. When we walked into the office, it was pretty empty. We weren't exactly sure where to go until a soft-spoken voice called us into a room. The office was covered in pictures and mementos. There were pictures on the wall of his family, baskets of pins scattered to support coal miners, a huge coal knitted blanket hanging. It was actually a very warm and inviting room. Not what we expected of the heart and soul of the West Virginia coal mining industry. Mr. Rainey was incredibly hospitable. He shook our hands as greetings and offered us both water. Once we were settled into leather chairs in the back of his office, we began the interview. I first asked Mr. Rainey to discuss what it means to work in the coal mining industry. We make up about uh, 15, 16 percent of the uh, economy here in the state. Uh, historically, it's been a huge part of the economy, as it continues to be. And we have about 15,000 West Virginians that are digging coal directly. Uh, sending coal to y'all in New York or other places so you got electricity to run your computers and do all the convenient things that you like to do. And, you know, so you got 15,000 that are every day digging coal. Then you uh, multiply that by about three, so you got another 45,000 that are dependent on a coal mine working somewhere in West Virginia every day. And then you further multiply that out into the economy here of convenience stores, food stores, uh, garages, car dealers, and those kinds of things. So it's a huge part of the economy. It's a proud part of the economy. And, you know, we've got the best coal miners in the world, and uh, they're doing things that nobody has any idea of what it is that they do, and they don't know that uh, folks in New York and Washington and other places don't know they depend on a West Virginia coal miner to make sure that the coffee pot works in the morning. A clear point I picked up from Mr. Rainey was that the media wasn't exactly getting it. But why? I asked him his thoughts on how he felt they are portraying it. Some of it's slanted, you know, they, some of it's anti-coal, and uh, particularly when you get outside West Virginia. Um, I don't think they understand it. I don't think they understand how important coal has been to the history of the country. Uh, through the world wars, building the industrial uh, uh, complex that we have in this country, uh, how much it, it depends on the economy. And, you know, they just 
they don't want to talk about it and everybody wants to kind of victimize it and talk about it being dirty. It's black uh, and you get dirt on your hands uh, when, when you do it. It's tough work. So, you know, they'd rather see windmills running and solar panels uh, going, but, you know, when you got a coal pile out back, you know you're going to be able to make electricity or do what you want to do from a power standpoint. So it's been misrepresented uh, pretty, pretty much generally across the country. Here was this man whose entire industry was a step away from vanishing, yet has reappeared and is doing his best to be on the road to bring it back. Mr. Rainey is extremely passionate about what he does and the people he works with. Talking to him made me take a step back. When you take out politics, even just for a second, it's hard to ignore the lack of respect we tend to see in the media when we talk about people like Mr. Rainey. I was starting to truly understand the misrepresentation people like him dealt with. Uh, you know, you've got some journalists that are very good and they take a look at it, but they always want to take the you know, the, the view that there's there's something wrong with it. We ought not be using coal. You know, America has more coal than any other country in the world. So you would think, using that, that we would be very much like the Middle East, that you would want everybody pulling on the same wagon to make sure we get maximum economic consideration, jobs and everything else out of the fuel that we, we're most prolific with. Uh, but there's a lot of people taking shots at it and want to change everything, and they think it's it's easier. You know, if you've got windmills and solar panels and the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing, now you're, you're going to have a bad day. So, uh, you know, what's what we say? We'd like to have a 60-day 60, 60 pile of coal out back so we know we're going to make two months' worth of electricity for whoever needs it. Taking everything Mr. Rainey said into account, there are still some things left out of the conversation. Can't coal have a bad day, too? What about the effects of coal mining on these hardworking miners' health? Lung diseases, cancer, possible death? But that wasn't what I came there to investigate. I wanted to take a deeper look into the world of media and see how bigger outlets tend to generalize and stereotype different groups of people. I wanted to look at the relationship firsthand between the media and individuals. I wanted to see where their trust went wrong. And speaking with Mr. Rainey allowed me to do that especially when I asked him what he wished the media did say. I went right for it, delving into the belly of the beast. I asked him what he wished the media focused on instead of all the negatives that they normally spotlight. They need to understand how professional the coal miners are. And, you know, I think they still have this impression that, you know, they've quit school in the fourth grade and they, they don't can't do anything else. And they're absolute craftsmen and they're so professional at what they do. Uh, they make about uh, eighty to ninety thousand dollars a year, and uh, they it, it's difficult work, and it's work that a lot of people don't want to do. But I'm telling you, the ones that are doing it are the best in the world, as I indicated. And you know, the the media don't take time to understand that. They they don't want to. They don't have the time to take. I don't guess to really understand what how important it is to these folks that mine the coal and how proud they are of what they do. People like Mr. Rainey aren't asking for anyone to change their views. They just want people to take a second to understand. This was the moment I found what I was looking for. This is what was wrong with the media industry. It's much more than just a biased article or a bad day in the minds. It's about taking a step back to understand. Mr. Rainey and his staff are just doing their job to the best of their ability. They are not looking to be the villains. No one wants to be the monster of the narrative, but it seems like a published piece always tends to have one. 
I think what we're doing is every day we're mining coal to, you know, that we didn't think we would mine 10 years ago because of the tremendous technology, and we're getting better at it. Uh, and they're going to continue to need it because, as I say, you can't depend on wind and solar, at least not in the east you can't. Uh, wind is probably more dependable out in the plain state where the wind blows seemingly constantly. Uh, solar panels are probably more important out in the west where the sun shines in the desert and those kinds of areas. Uh, so you need to have a regional energy policy, but as I said, we got more coal than any other country. So we ought to be using it. We ought to be trying to figure out how to make it better and make everyone be acceptable to it, if you will. Um, we're seeking a no emissions power plant. We're very close to that. Um, and we want to keep our folks working here. I mean, we got a whole bunch of coal left and uh, we've been mining coal for about 150 years. Uh, we've been a state for 155, so I guess we've been mining coal that long. So, you know, we, we want to continue to do that because there's a bunch of communities out here and the economy depends on it. The last thing I asked Mr. Rainey was what he wanted people who don't know a lot about West Virginia to know, that they wouldn't be able to grasp in the current media. Just learn a little more about it and how important it is and how good these folks are that mine it. And, you know, they're not wanting any accolades from anybody. They just like to have a little appreciation of the fact that, you know, we're digging coal out of the mountain and sending it to a power plant somewhere so folks can have the conveniences that they enjoy. And the electrification of America was probably one of the greatest engineering uh, accomplishments of our time, uh, uh, probably of history for that matter. And to continue to improve on that, uh, we feel like we're a huge part of that and we want to continue to be. It's now January 15th and I'm still thinking about this trip. I'm thinking about the people I talked to, the areas I stayed in, the office buildings I traveled through. People in West Virginia are moving through their lives like usual, as are the figures in the media world. Nothing drastic has changed, and West Virginians are still being portrayed in the same way. Yet, here I am, two months later, looking at everything with a new lens. My story is much more than just the words and facts published in papers. It's about how people's lives are being portrayed. Recently, I was in an environmental studies class, and we were learning about the environmental effects of the coal mining industries. I referenced the interview that I was lucky enough to have with Mr. Rainey and shared it with all of my classmates, so they too had an equal opportunity to get to experience another perspective in an issue that's always talked about. Even though it was just a small action, it made everything I've been doing worth it. What I'm investigating matters. I was able to get my classmates to see a new lens through one interview. What if the bigger media outlets were able to do this? To be able to represent a story showing all sides. Just one look at a new perspective can change a person's life. I came to West Virginia to investigate the mistrust between the citizens of West Virginia and the media. I was able to accomplish that, but it amounted to much more than just that. The relationship between West Virginians and the media is completely damaged. I saw this firsthand with the people I talked to for a few minutes in the mall, and I partially felt it through my interview with Bill Rainey. New York Magazine recently released an article discussing the tribalism in our society. It partially explains the reason for this division in media. Everyone has their own tribe. Reporters, coal miners, news outlets. Everyone stays in their tribal bubble, reluctant to hear each other out or emphasize with others. The article explains the problem with this, quoting, But this requires, of course, first recognizing our own tribal thinking. 
So much of our debates are now an easy either-or, rather than a complicated both-and. In our tribal certainties, we often distort what we actually believe in the quiet of our hearts and fail to see what aspects of truth the other tribe may grasp. If there's ever to be a solution, it's going to require a major change. I can't single-handedly change the media industry by myself. No one person can. It's going to require a complete change in how we tell stories. But isn't changing our ways better than the alternative of not giving groups of people and professions equal representation? I think it is, and I hope to see this change soon.